This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Rent control legislation came in that sort of made it less interesting for investors to consider investing in the apartment sector. Rents were constrained. There was a limit to how much you can increase rents, and people shifted into different sectors. The big institutional investors shifted into office buildings and shopping centers and said, well, this is regulated. We don't like operating in a regulated business, and we don't like having the rules in place that limit how much we can increase rents. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll learn what happens when no one builds apartment buildings for 25 years. We'll find out about the treatment of shoulder tendinitis. We'll discuss getting grounded in your garden. And lastly, we'll hear about the natural approach to anti-aging for your skin. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm going to read you a quote. Okay. Okay. I read this somewhere, but it's a direct quote because I cut and pasted it from the article I read. So it's direct. From 1990 to 2017, less than 9% of the units of housing built in Ontario were purpose-built rentals. So less than 9% for almost 25 years had nothing to do with purpose-built rentals. It was either condos or single-family dwellings, but not purpose-built rentals. Pretty shocking, right? It is. It's terrifying, and it leads to all sorts of results. And I thought today would be interesting to sort of discuss what are the results that come about when you don't build apartments for 25 years. So why did this happen? Let's start there. Well, first of all, there's more than one answer. Yeah. Like everything, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the easy answer that everyone says is that rent control legislation came in. Right. That sort of made it less interesting for investors to consider investing in the apartment sector. Right. Right. Um, rents were, were, were constrained. With, uh, there was a limit to how much you can increase rents. And... People shifted into different sectors, uh, both office buildings. The big institutional investors shifted into office buildings and industrial buildings and shopping centers and said, well, this is regulated. We don't like operating in a regulated business, and we don't like having the rules in place that limit how much we can increase rents. Uh, And it also lends itself to – there are a lot of people who morally say – all of a sudden, this is a business that makes sense for low-cost operators. We don't want to be a slumlord. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, if we're a professional real estate company or an institutional investor, 
I don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper talking about why I didn't change the windows or change the heating system or whatever. So I'd rather shy away. So there's a combination of that side of what the legislation did. But right. don't forget, and and I I think it's interesting. We're all caught up because we're in like the uh, you know fifteenth year of a seven year real estate cycle. Right. Um, so people forget that there are times when real estate is not as viable. Things get overbuilt. Right. The financial uh, markets have problems. Lending shuts down, right. and it makes it harder. So don't forget that in the in the late '80s and early '90s, we also had a, a big real estate debacle. It was triggered mainly by overdevelopment of office buildings, but at the same time, banks backed away from financing real estate projects. So we had this double whammy of high interest rates and people not wanting to lend on real estate projects overall. And on top of that, we had poor legislation supporting the fact that people didn't want to build apartment buildings. So all that came together for close to a decade of just a stagnating rental sector. Right. Okay. And and then there are results that come about. So let's look at the results from the supply side. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's a no-brainer. If it's not worth it to build the buildings, then fewer buildings are built, which means there's a constriction of supply, right? Right. And, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine why that happened. Often it's for political reasons. Right. Rents are increasing too much because there's inflation. There's inflation and that leads to higher interest rates. Um, You know, it's almost counterproductive. Uh, You know, I would argue that it is completely counterproductive that at the worst times when there is pressure pushing rents up, for people to say, well, now's a good time to put price controls in place and limit the supply because the reaction in a smart way is the exact opposite. Well, you know, philosophically, the people who are proposing that are probably of the mindset that, you know, having a place to live in the city of your choice is a quote unquote right. And therefore the government should be providing those places to live and not the private sector. I think there's a lot of that sentiment. Uh, And I think that was probably what was driving a lot of it. I can't you know, say that there's something wrong with that from a, a social perspective. I'm just, I'm just saying It just makes it hard, right, to, right. to sort of draw capital to it because capital is mobile. It's mobile internationally and it's mobile to different sectors, even within real estate. Well, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to have a private sector that is providing rental housing, then you, you, you can't at the same time promote the idea that all housing should be government provided because then there's chaos. But leaving that aside, that's not really what happened. But the net result is we now have... Uh, you know, up until very recently, older apartment stock, which doesn't necessarily relate to the needs of the modern renter, correct? Since 1997, in my mind, we've been in a sort of healthier phase of uh, understanding rental housing. Right. You know, legislation changed where you, you still had rent controls for sitting tenants. People could only have their rents increased by a certain amount every year, both a guideline and an above guideline if a landlord spent capital in a building. But typically those were in the, you know, one and a half to two and a half percent range, manageable. We also had legislation called vacancy decontrol, which opened the door to people upgrading apartments to a more modern standard when people left. Right. Where that's been healthy is that if you wanted to stay in your house, you were protected. If you left... It gave a landlord opportunity to upgrade the suites, which were getting older, had been neglected uh, to a large degree because of the legislation. And I'm not saying that they were unlivable, but there was much room for improvement in terms of changing kitchens and uh, adding washer dryers and uh, and and dishwashers to units and things right. that people see as standard now. There were also motivations to increase common areas and amenities and make buildings more interesting both for the sitting tenants and for new tenants. That has allowed us over the last, you know, close to 20 years 
to get rents slowly escalating to a point where you, you could make sense of new rental construction. And I would say in the last 36 months, particularly in Toronto, we're at that point where rents support construction of new apartments. Now, part of that is helped by the fact that interest rates are very low right. and that there's a complete undersupply of the product. But we're in a bit of a golden age for building apartment buildings because they're not coming on in an oversupplied way because it still takes a long time to get approvals and there's alternatives like building a condo on the same site. But we're f- starting to find a healthier balance Unfortunately, the catch-up will take a very long time because of how long we went without any new construction. Right, well, which brings me to my next point, which is demand. And the net result of holding the rental rates down is people aren't, aren't moving as much, which means if you want to get into the market, and we have all kinds of people moving to the city from other parts of Canada, from other countries, and you know we have population growth, just people have kids, and you need a place to live. So now we have demand that outstrips the supply, correct? And that's a tricky phase, right? Because until the market is really working, until you have an inventory that has 3 or 4% vacancy, right. it's hard to differentiate rents. We're at a point now where rents are increasing on turnover on older buildings because right. there's not enough supply, and rents are strong on new buildings, which makes sense. I hope that people have the stomach to get through the next few years where we get a balanced supply, and then people can choose to be in older stock rentals in in, uh, lesser uh, sort of levels of upgrade at one price, upgraded at another, and new product at a third price. Uh, And then you get a market that works for people based on the decisions they want to take where they want to live. Again, affordability will always be an issue for part of society. And to me, that has to get solved outside of the private apartment sector. And some of that is, you know, working together with government to figure out, is there a percentage of a building should be affordable? Or should some people get allowances to subsidize their rents to be able to make living in the city possible for them? But we're on the right track at the moment to getting some balance over the next four or five years in Toronto in the housing market. So you're an optimist. I'm looking at it like I'm looking at it like an, an economist because that was my my undergrad degree, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at the broken cycle. Right. I'm looking at a situation where, you know, with all due respect, I think the new apartment buildings that are being built with all the amenities are probably not what the new some sector of the new people coming into the market can afford necessarily. And that's because the market is broken. I think what you're saying is eventually this will work through and there will be buildings that will be appropriate for people just getting into the market who perhaps can't afford the new buildings, right? Well, what encourages me is I read a lot about this stuff yeah. where you heard for a while that there was a demand for new and luxury apartment buildings and that kind of stuff. Right. You're starting to hear the industry and the industry sort of a associations talk about, you know, there's also a a demand for, you know, areas on the fringe of the core with larger suites that that, uh, deal well with uh, new Canadian families and families looking for rental with more affordability. And I think as rents push up at the higher end of of the rental sector, we're going to see rents that, that, that support stuff happening, maybe not right in the downtown core, but in newly developing areas, some of which are being triggered by added transit, which right. make other parts of town interesting, yep. you could see where different parts of town are going to lend themselves to, let's try building rental that is now not as luxurious, but serves another need because maybe in parts of town we're going to get overbuilt with luxury apartment buildings and you're going to have people now with an expertise at building apartment buildings and with capital available to them to do that stuff and say, well, let's try something a little more affordable next. I I just see the signs that we're getting closer to having a market that could work its way towards a far more 
balance the view to how to provide rental housing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think if we're smart about transit, you know, building proper transit will may help us with our housing issue, right? As you said, if it opens up new areas, if the person who can't afford to rent and have a car to drive downtown, maybe they can afford that unit if they're taking you know, a subway or a street train that is convenient to them and they don't need the car. Maybe that's the way it works out, you know, and and going forward, that's the way the Torontonians are going to live. I think it takes time for people to adjust to it because people get attached to their neighborhood. But as a real estate developer, I see myself opening my eyes to it as I'm going around town and saying, wow, the Crosstown Link is going here. Maybe this is an interesting uh, shopping center to redevelop as uh, as multifamily housing. Those things weren't on your mind 15 years ago. I've got a list of other like problems that the, the controls have have sort of created. You're looking forward to a time when these w- these problems work out. You're in the industry. How long do you see it's going to take for these like spasms to work their way through the market so so that there's more balance? First of all, I think we need stability in legislation right. you know, across, you know, governments change. Right. And if policy is going to change, it makes it hard to build a relationship with an industry when you know that it's going to flip-flop every four or eight years. 100%. Right? Because these are long-term investments. And first of all, in the planning and the and the construction and the, the uh, investment and having the confidence of the lenders and the investors to sort of do these things, we need to get to a place where everyone agrees that we should have a long-term policy for rental housing. On top of that, you know, we need to start thinking about are there companies who are going to commit themselves to being long-term builders of rental housing? People are flirting with it now. Right. You see people doing it as part of what they do. Right. Um, I just think that over time, there, if there is stability, people will look at it and say, yeah, this, this is a real business. And I think if we have a decade of that, we could have a very different supply on the rental housing side rather than just using condominiums as a crutch to filling a need that's strong in the marketplace. Okay, so I'm just I'm going to try and summarize what I think I've just heard from you. So you're saying if everybody everybody gets their act together and and the different levels of government sort of work collectively, which and and, and with greater purpose and a long term view, it's going to take what five to ten years for Correct. this cycle to work through at the very least. Right. So what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, we've got a situation where we've got this. I I, I don't want to call it a crisis because I I think. You know, people have choices. They can choose to live outside the city and commute in. Uh, they can choose, you know, at the end of the day, maybe wages have to go up to help support people who are working in the city. I, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, you, you Let's know. not forget, that there are a lot of condo projects all over town that are dealing with some of the uh, pressure of, that's affecting the rental system. Right. Right? A hundred percent. And at some point that'll change. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly how it'll change. But right now, many people are buying condominiums to use them and to help their kids in terms of uh, right. having a, somewhere to live when they graduate from university or move out of the home. But there are also people saying, I'm going to buy a condo now. It may potentially be for my kids or for myself in the future, right. but I'm going to rent it out in the interim. That's been an important part of it because interest rates are low and people have said this is an interesting investment. I think that'll continue to be part of what eases a not perfect situation right now. But you're right. Toronto is going to be an expensive city uh, and continue to be an expensive city. Even if we're building in a balanced way, the amount of uh, of development charges and other costs that it takes to build a new product and the cost of land in a city where there's an alternative always right. with affluent people and foreign buyers looking to buy here. I think overall, you know, we've got to come to accept that the days of having uh, bargains in a vibrant big city may be, may be over. But finding a balance better than what we have today is certainly possible. 
I agree. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but we will be right back on The Tonic. We're going to discuss the treatment of shoulder tendinitis. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMED Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. Delayed medical treatments have become a widespread trend in Ontario, with patients in chronic pain waiting 10 to 20 months between a GP referral and orthopedic surgery. To beat the waiting game and regain their quality of life, Ontarians are opting for private treatment solutions and traveling abroad for their health. What a lot of them don't know is that they can find treatment options in Montreal. ICS Clinic offers quick and affordable treatment solutions by some of the most sought-after specialists in the country, without the need for a referral. For more information, visit icsmontreal.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Dr. Jacques Toig, is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine and arthroscopic surgery of the shoulder and knee. The doctor is well known for his medical expertise with professional athletes and his work as chief physician of the Rogers Cup Tennis Canada and director of the Montreal Institute for Special Surgery. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. So last time we were speaking more generally of wait times for elective surgeries, but today we're going to focus in on a specific ailment or an area of the body, and, that, and that's the shoulder, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a quite frequent injury that uh, I do take care of in, in our clinic. And whether it's in sports injuries or whether it's uh, patients who uh, get injured at work, so it's, it's quite a frequent injury. In what ways are people prone to suffering shoulder inflammation or shoulder injury? Let's say uh, if it's in sports, we uh, often see this in overhead uh, sports. For an example, is tennis is a good example where you have people who haven't played for a while and then uh, summer comes over and then they start playing again and they did not train a bit and and did not uh, straighten their rotator cuff. But at work, it could happen whether it's through an injury, through a fall, or sometimes because you do exactly the same movements that implicates a weight. So it could be, uh, most of the time, it's a tendonitis or irritation of the uh, rotator cuff that we're going to see in, in most patients. Now, the rotator cuff is quite important to the shoulder. It's, it's actually the union of four muscles together that will um, create a big tendon that actually controls the shoulder. So often patients think that if you have a tendonitis on the shoulder, it's your bicep, but it's not actually. It's it's what we call the rotator cuff, which is a huge tendon that really controls your shoulder. And that's the one that gets injured, whether it's at work or whether it's through sports. 
Yeah, and it's common for baseball pitchers to get rotator cuff injuries because they're putting such stress on their shoulder through their throwing movement, right? Absolutely, and that's uh, so we see this in throwing athletes because they uh, a lot of the force that they're generating comes from their shoulder, but normally it should come more from their waist and body more than their shoulder. But if you don't have a good technique, you might injure yourself. And I often say that to patient: if you like tennis and you get you, you, you are prone to injuries with your shoulder, hire a coach. Make sure that your techniques is perfect, and that will, you know, that's one way of avoiding a lot of issues. Yeah, I actually injured my rotator cuff a few years ago. I was doing a little bit of promotion for the magazine, and I was working up to 100 consecutive push-ups, which is a lot. And yeah. a friend of mine who actually runs a CrossFit gym was telling me, he also happens to be an emergency room doctor, he said, look, you know, you're going to have to do some other exercises because you're putting such significant stress on your shoulders by the repetitive movement in such a short time period that you're going to blow out your shoulder. You're going to blow out your rotator cuff. So he actually gave me some small muscle exercises to do to help counterbalance the stress that I was putting on the rotator cuff, which is, I'm sure, something that you're familiar with. Absolutely. And, and uh, one of the key things that you said, I, I call them my weekend warriors, yeah. where they don't do much in the, during weekdays. And then, you know, once we're in the weekend, yeah. they start doing a lot of exercises or, or they haven't done some exercises for a long period of time and they do a lot of things in a short period of time. So that can cause injuries. The other thing is that we have a, a certain morphology of our shoulder. So our rotator cuff actually goes through a tunnel before it attaches to our arms. And in some people, that tunnel is a bit tight. Okay. So we call that impingement. So it's actually the tendon that gets impinged every time you bring your arm past 70 degrees, whether it's going forward or on the side. So those patients tend to have more irritation because of the anatomy of their shoulder. And those patients are more prone to whether tendonitis or even rotator cuff tear in a long period of time. So it's quite important that if you have any symptoms, you should get a bit of rest and definitely exercising or especially warming up before you do any exercise is really important because you uh, wake up your cuff a bit yep. and you need to strengthen it. So if you're going to be doing a very strenuous activity or, or starting a new sports that you haven't done for a while or, or as the same as you did, uh, you, you starting doing a lot of push-ups without even having done any exercises for your cuff, this is how it happens. So yep. I always say to patients, go slowly, whatever you're doing, go slowly, make sure you warm up a bit. Make sure you do some exercises that are specific for your activity or sports. And those are all good things to do, be, you know, to, to try to avoid any injuries. Right. I mean, I was told, and, and I exercise quite a bit, the best warm-ups pre-workout are the more dynamic stretches, right? Whereas, exactly. Where you are not putting the stress that you would, let's say, if you're you know, lifting weights, but the range of motion, what you're trying to do is open up the body to get used to that motion in a relaxed way and build up to the stress that you're going to be putting onto it. Whereas when you're done with your workout, it's equally important to do the more static stretch which allows the elasticity in the muscles to regroup 
And if you're building muscle or you're, you want to rest those muscles, that's the time to sort of do the long stretches, right? Absolutely. This is all true. The other point that I would uh, add is that, you know, when you do your warm-up, you want to bring your temperature up. So it doesn't matter yeah. whatever you're doing, whether it's uh, uh, using a skip rope or, or doing stationary bike or, or, or just to start moving your, your body by like jogging and moving your joints. This is what you want to do. You want to build up a bit of temperature to wake up your body before you, you get into an activity. But the thing is, is that once you, <laughs> once the injury happens, this is where the trouble sometimes starts. So one of the things that I always recommend to patients is, you know, if they get injured or if the, the soreness is important, first you stop those activities, you put yep. some ice, you know, a bit of anti-inflammatory if it's not contraindicated for you. And then you give it a rest. If that doesn't work, then sometimes you need to consult whether it's your physician or whether it's your physio to be at least evaluated and see what's going on. Because one of the things that I see that worries me a lot is that we see a lot of rotator cuff tears that need surgeries. And the thing is, is that we have those patients who have had a tendonitis for a while, or they think they have a tendonitis at first because it's sore, because, you know, they're having difficulty in their motion. Yep. And at the end of the day, it's not just a tendonitis. They have more than that. So normally we, we try to see those patients quickly. I recommend that they see a physician, whether it's to have an ultrasound of their shoulder to see how's the rotator cuff, if it's torn or not, is it inflamed? And sometimes we need to go all the way to an MRI. And if by any chance or if, you know, if they're not lucky enough that they have a tear, then in most cases it will become an indication for surgery. So what we're trying to avoid is to get to the surgery because it's worse that the rehab is, is longer, even though we do all those surgeries arthroscopically now with the camera. So the rehab is, is much faster. You recuperate better. We have a better healing process it is still a surgery. So we, we're trying to, to have our patient to avoid going through surgery, but in certain cases, I don't have much choice to operate on them. Right. So before we get to that point, so let's say I had a sports injury or I had an inkling that I had done some, some damage to my shoulder, or maybe it's tendonitis. What sort of treatments, other than icing it or getting some anti-inflammatories into the system, what do you recommend? Are there, are there stretches or exercises you can do? Can you turn it around at that point? Well, the thing is, is that once the inflammation is there, most exercises I would recommend to go through a physio and the reason yeah. why is that is because it might be specific to what part of the rotator cuff you did injured or you did inflamed so remember I told you it was four muscle at first that unite together yeah so it might be more one part than the other or sometimes it, it's not even a tendonitis sometimes we have an instability issue and that's a whole different thing yep. so it's it's important to see whether a physio could help you with that first to specify the diagnostic and if it's not clear We'll do an ultrasound. In our center here, we often do ultrasound to my patient just to see dynamically what's going on, right. uh, where is the inflammation. And once we know exactly what's going on, this is where we can you know, focus on the treatment and say, okay, we need to work on that part of the cuff or we need to work on, on this area. And then uh, you're going to have a treatment that's more specific through rehab. Okay. There are ways to avoid injuries, right? I mean, if you're active, things happen, right? If you're playing sports, these things do come up. But, but there are ways other than just, you know, stretching before and after to avoid the injuries, right? Definitely. So we, we've talked about, you know, having a coach with us if, if we're not sure about our technique. But let's right. say you're at work and, you, you, you know, you tend to have, you know, shoulder pain. Right. One of the things you can do at work is to take what we call micro-pause. So, so, that, so that means that if you're doing a strenuous work, 
you can always take a few seconds or like a 10 second or 30 second break and then you resume. So those small breaks, they made a huge difference on your tendon. So to take those micro pause during work, that could help. The other thing is that I always say to my patient, try to be more conscious about your posture or what you're doing and try to modify the few things at work because some patients don't, you know, when you're young, you're doing stuff and you're not thinking, you're just doing those and you, you don't have any pain or any injury. But with time, when you get past the age of 40 or 50, then the same movement that you've always been doing might be an issue because you, you're not in a good posture. You need to be conscious of this and modify this to make sure you don't get injured and always go slowly. Whatever happens, if you go slowly, th- there are chances you're not going to get injured. You know, if you really have to follow a fast space, then your posture will be really, really important to try to avoid any injuries. Well, that's fantastic advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to get grounded through gardening on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic magazine and vice versa. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being, with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold. She's a knowledgeable and entertaining writer, and she wrote a great article in the May issue of Tonic all about the benefits of gardening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So this time of year is when I get back on my achy knees and I get a weird tan on the back of my neck right. because I'm getting <laughs> because I'm getting my garden ready for planting, right? This, right. Is, this is busy time. Yes. So Usually, although we have to comment on the fact that the weather these days is yeah. not really conducive to you no. know, setting up your garden bed. No, I know. But so you, <laughs> Sometimes it's like I've been looking out the window. Uh, do I really want to do this in the rain? So I've been doing a little, like in between the drops, I've been going out and doing this or that. The rain, of course, is great for the garden. Yes, absolutely. And, it's good and, for you. I didn't yeah. know that you were a gardener. Yes. No, I totally, I pulled out every stitch of grass in my front yard and backyard. Okay. And I have an urban oasis in my backyard. But within that, I have three raised planters, two of which are herbs and vegetables. Oh, wow. And we also have wild black raspberries, mint, blueberries, and various other things growing all throughout the back. So even though there's no grass, there's lots going on. 
That sounds amazing. Yeah. And is the mint taking over? Because it generally likes okay, to so do that. Okay, so I've got that. the... Uh, it How does. are you containing that one? Well, <laughs> it's a busy fall. Yeah. So, so each fall, I've got to really push back on the mint. Yeah. But yes, you're right. Uh, it, it grows everywhere. No, it's it's. Uh, I will show you pictures. Sorry, for those who want to see the garden, uh, if you go to the if you go to tonictoronto.com, you can see. Uh, type in "fabulous backyard makeover" and you can see what I did with my own two hands. In any event, um, you say you say that gardening actually grounds us, right? Absolutely. Yes. So, and, and I do find that's true myself, but what do you mean by it when, when you say it? Yeah. So, so grounding is also known as earthing yeah. and it has quite the reputation for those who are more interested in natural health. I'll right. say. You're, you're, you're saying grounding literally. I'm, I'm, literally, I'm yes. saying it philosophically, but you mean it in an entirely different way. Yes. Um, so what it refers to is actually putting your bare feet on the ground. So this could be in the soil on grass, in the sand, um, and you're basically making sure that your body is coming into contact with the earth. Yes. So that's that's a really simple way of putting it. So I, I do have to say that if you feel shy about, you know, after this episode, if you feel really inspired and you feel shy about telling your family that you're going to start grounding. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm often victim to to you know uh, family teasing and getting called a granola for the different natural health. Nobody's things ever called me a granola <laughs> in my entire life. Even though I garden, I give up no gra- no granola vibe yeah. zero. So go so ahead. So if you want to start small, maybe yeah. start with the sand and yeah. um, you know play around on the beach a bit. But it's fantastic for the body. Um, so if we talk about it in the context of gardening. Mm-hmm. When we garden, we're interacting with the soil. We're planting flowers. We're putting vegetables in the ground. Maybe we're even forced to pick weeds. You know, whatever the occasion is, you're still coming into contact with the earth. And so just to throw in a bit of science here, Mm -hmm. as we know, our cells are made of molecules. Yes. Molecules are made of atoms. These atoms carry a charge. And so the interesting thing is that our bodies function with a biochemical electrical current. Mm -hmm. And by coming into contact with the negative charge of the earth, we are actually exposing our bodies to what we call like a limitless supply of electrons or free electrons. Yes. Are you with me still? I'm, I'm coming along with you. Okay. Okay. So these, these free electrons actually help to neutralize the free radicals in our bodies. So we've talked about free radicals yes. before on here, um, but just as a little recap, free radicals are the unstable atoms in our body. So they're constantly looking for electrons in our body to steal from other other atoms in our body um, to become more stable. And what does this mean for us? It means that there, our cells are in danger of dying, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to make sure we're neutralizing the free radicals. Grounding is a great way to do this. And you're saying this is scientifically proven? 100%. <laughs> you can't see it at home, but I'm looking incredulously at my guest. So, you know, it, it's it's pretty low risk. All you're doing is peeling off your socks and shoes and, yes. and, and getting your feet it's so dirty. Simple. It's so simple. And it might work. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Well, you know. Do you do this regularly? Do you I, do it, Megan? Absolutely. No, yeah. I absolutely do. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a backyard garden anymore. But when okay. I did, I was out there all the time. Um, so even though I don't have one, I go to my sister's place and she's also an avid, avid gardener. Right. Right. in the family. Um, so I make sure that I'm getting my getting my grounding then. For okay. Sure. So I value gardening and, and I'm an advocate of it, but for different reasons. And I think it adds to your quality of life. And, and I'm sure we can come to agreement on this. So, Absolutely. So what do you get out of the gardening that you're doing? Uh, personally. So um, in my article, I talk about 
how when I was a little kid, I was constantly playing around in the soil and and in the garden, really. And and unfortunately, I think it's something that kids are less inclined to do these days. We've got iPads, we've got cell phones. And so they're much more likely to be glued to those than playing with worms and bugs and catching caterpillars, right? Right. And so for me, that's where it all started. Um, And little did I know, I was actually being mindful myself, you know, I've, I was practicing mindfulness. And so for me, I, I feel that gardening contributes to a quality of life because it allows for us to be more mindful. You know, you're, you're able to watch, watch your crops grow, watch your right. little seedlings grow from, from seed to harvest. Um, you're actually practicing, you know, nurturing too. Well, it's a creative process, too. At least it, it was for me because I did a little bit of landscape architecture, which when you're a, gar- okay. when you're a gardener, you know, when you're plotting out where you're going to put your gardens and where you're going to plant and what you're going to do, if you're doing it with flowers or perennials or annuals or whatever, you know, you're thinking about, you know, what the end result's going to look like. And when you're planting yes. and you're giving the proper space for the bush or the tree to grow and, you know, what's that going to look like in 10 years when everything grows, you, you kind of have to have that in your mind's eye. Yes. But, but for me, it's also sort of getting out outside and into the space and kind of tuning out in a way that I used to do when I was running, you know, it's, it, you know, weeding isn't fun. I mean, there's nothing good about <laughs> weeding, but if you had to do an, you know, a half hour of it, an hour of it, you know, just to get your garden started or you're clearing a space, it's, a, it's you're turning something. out your brain, you're turning off your brain, but yes. you're kind of doing something. Yeah. And I wouldn't say, there's a lot of physical activity. However, if you're moving rocks around and if you're doing Digging landscaping, holes. yeah, for you know, sure. Landscapers, it can be a lot. landscapers are all pretty fit. For sure. But gardeners, you know, Getting on your hands and knees and digging and and doing stuff like that, it's physical. At the Absolutely. end of the day, it's physical. So. Absolutely. So yeah. So like you said, it, it can it can be very similar to that the effect you feel when you're running. You you're able to turn off the chatter in your brain and really focus on the task in front of you. Right. Right. And I mean the other the other major major and, and obvious thing about gardening is that you're outside. You're right. with the fresh air. You're getting some sunshine. You know. And you're safe, gr- and you're growing way. organic foods, and right? you're growing organic food. Yes. So what? I think the obvious thing is that you're getting that mood boosting effect from the vitamin D from the sun, right? right? You're getting fresh air, and you're of course watching your organic produce grow. Right. I mean, we went as far. We had chickens one year, so we had organic. Did you really? Yeah, we had chickens before it was <coughs> legal. Um, <laughs> I was uh, going to say, was that out summer. of town? Where yeah. was it? Was that up north? But I'm, no, okay. I'm, I'm not uh, at liberty to say. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had chickens, which are great for your garden because their poop makes your uh, vegetables grow magically. Yes. And they're sweet creatures, but they are a lot of work. Yes. And, and they are a lot of work, and the work all fell to me. And How long did that last? It lasted one whole summer. Okay. And they're sweet, and they were terrific. The problem was my wife felt that they should not be spending any time in their enclosed area during the day, so we let them out. Okay. And once they found my gardens, they decimated my kale (laughs) because they'll eat anything. Um, So whereas the poop is great for growing stuff, if they eat everything, that's not cool. So the chicken experiment is done. Yes. But we grow herbs, vegetables, berries. Like There's a lot that can grow in Ontario uh, without too much effort. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you also find too that because you can see all of your fruits and veggies, the raspberries, all the herbs growing in front of you, you feel inspired to cook healthier 
your meals. Oh, for sure. Right? I mean, we're already there. Yeah. But be, just being able to just go out into your garden, see what's ready, bring it back in and conceptualize what you want to cook with it is amazing. And the other thing you talk about in your article is a sense of community, which is uh, for yes. the last couple of minutes of the interview. Let's talk about that. For me, you know, it's a way to engage with my neighbors because, you know, when they, when they saw what I was doing and, you know, some of the work I was doing took me like months to do because I was doing it all myself. You know, I had all these materials in the front. They they all wanted to know what I was up to because I live in a neighborhood where everybody has gardeners. They just pay the guy to come in and do it. And here I was doing it myself. Slugging it away. Exactly. (laughs) It was, it was, I was the talk of the neighborhood for an entire summer. But the other thing is like, I bring kids in, the kids in the neighborhood want to come in and see the garden because they'll help me plant vegetables and and stuff like that. It's a learning experience. It it really is. Right. Because if you live in the city, you really don't get a chance to see it. Yeah, it's true. And Obviously, you know, being an avid gardener, you know that when you're growing certain vegetables, you'll get an abundance of them and you almost have to share it with your community, with your neighbors, with your family members, too. Um, But it's just such an easy way to connect with people. You know, here, here's a whole bunch of cherry tomatoes. I had so many. Here you go. Enjoy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And they usually give you alcohol in return, right? Because they're not growing. (laughs) They're not growing anything. So, you know, I get bottles of wine and scotch. That's pretty amazing. Isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> well, I grow good vegetables, so you know, like it, turnabout is fair play. But oh, that's funny. Yeah, so yeah, no, it it is a very nice way to connect uh, with your neighbors. You know, yeah, yeah. If you have extra produce, so we had a bumper crop of hot peppers last last year, and my oh, next wow. my next door neighbor loves hot peppers, so we gave them a bunch, and and they were very happy. So that's it's amazing. All, it's all good. Where I live in the East End, um, we have Paula Fletcher, who's known for sure. her community compost day. So she'll yeah. she'll come and dump a. a big batch of fresh compost for everyone to come and you come with your buckets or your bags whatever and and again you're connecting with community you're you're seeing how we're all contributing to to healthier soil with the compost um hopefully healthier food by using that compost to grow your food so again um really fantastic way to to contribute to the community the other the other way too is if you don't necessarily have your own garden bed there are a lot of um garden communities that you can join so nestled in the different pockets of Toronto, we have lots of them. So that's another way to get involved. Fantastic advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Uh, But we're going to hear back from you again next month, right? Yes, absolutely. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the natural approach to anti-aging for your skin on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic 
on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So everyone is interested in having youthful looking skin. And you're on the show today because you've got some suggestions that really everybody can try, right? Yes. Absolutely. So let's start with food, right? And you don't necessarily think of what you're eating as having an impact on your skin, but it does, right? It does, especially from, you know, a Chinese medicine standpoint or an Ayurvedic medicine standpoint. These are types of medicines that have been practiced. You know, they're ancient forms of medicine from the East, from China and India. And in these types of medicine, what you eat absolutely affects the quality of the skin, how your skin's hydrated, and the collagen production. So while your skin stays plump and youthful looking. And so from this standpoint, you want to be eating things that have beneficial oils in them. One, so that could be avocados, olive oil, omega-3 fatty acids. You also want to make sure, especially in Chinese medicine, they talk about having eating foods that are very hydrating, so have a high content of water. So that would be things like watermelon, cucumber, cucumbers, yeah. exactly, aloe vera. So aloe vera, we know, is very good for the skin topically. It has a nice uh, healing and anti-inflammatory property topically, but it could also be used internally to also help potentially help the skin. Hmm, did not know that. Yeah, so omega-3 fatty acids, we know there hasn't been as many studies on internal consumption of avocados and skin health. We do know they're high in this beneficial oil. They're also high in vitamin E, which helps the skin. We have seen some nice studies on omega-3 fatty acids and helping clear up eczema or dry skin when taken internally. Right. Now, you're talking about normal dietary intake. You're not talking about, you know, huge portions of all these things, correct? Right. Yes. So, so like, just because we've told you to have cucumbers doesn't mean that if you down a cucumber a day that your skin is going to look better, right? That's right. Yeah, but even adding cucumber to, you know, like the typical spa water you'd have. Right. If you go for a massage or the spa, they'd have cut up cucumber and water. Right. That can be something you can make at home, and you're still getting some of that nice hydrating benefit of the water. And some people find it tastes better, and then they're inclined to drink more water, which is also good. Which I was just going to say, if you need to hydrate, you could always have more water, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. There are ways to protect your skin as well, right? There are. Everyone knows. Everyone's heard for so long uh, about, you know, covering up in the sun, uh, using sunscreen, a hat, long sleeve, because with the UVA and the UVB rays, your skin can have sun damage and sun damage can accelerate aging. The interesting part of this is there was a study that came out last year showing that sunscreen doesn't necessarily protect against skin cancer. Huh making sure that you're not burned. Burning increases your chance of skin cancer. Right. So not getting burned helps reduce your chance of skin cancer, but it doesn't seem that sunscreen necessarily reduces that fact, which is interesting. At sunscreen also doesn't allow for your body to fully absorb vitamin D. Same with covering up. So I do think that exposing your sun to short periods of time before you burn, so for a lot of people, this might just be like five, six minutes 
if you know you're outside on a sunny day and you just sit in the sun for just a few minutes you start to get some vitamin D you feel great and then maybe you cover up you put your hat on you make sure you're not burning but having a little bit of sun is really good for the mood too much obviously accelerates skin aging so covering up is I think the best way to reduce cellular aging from the skin I agree and you can always sort of check online to see what the UV rating is for that day and just because it's cloudy don't presume that that you can go out for a long period of time those UV rays penetrate a lot of different types of cloud so you need to look into it you can't just assume absolutely what are some of the topical treatments that actually work to get rid of wrinkles so when we're looking at anti-aging and wrinkle reduction topically, we want to look at two classes. One of them is antioxidants, and so that actually reduces collagen degradation yes. by reducing the concentration of free radicals on your skin. And the other one is cellular regulators. So these have direct effect on collagen metabolism, and they can influence how your body produces collagen. So in the first group, the antioxidants, the three ones that we have some research on that actually help topically is vitamin C vitamin B3 and vitamin E. Okay. And then the cell regulators, that's the retinol. That's the vitamin A and actually the hormone estriol. So actually topical estrogen. So what types of products, are there creams that have these vitamins in them? There you're not, are. You're not yeah. crumbling up a vitamin C tablet and rubbing it no, on your skin, right? No, absolutely not. No, no. The best way is either finding a really good company, a reputable company. A lot of higher-end dermatology clinics or spas will sell some of these products. Right. The other thing is if you're the dermatologist you're working with or medical doctors and naturopathic doctors can actually compound these substances, generally not in their own office, but through a pharmacy, they can make a compounded cream that can be a topical anti-aging cream. Are those expensive compared to what you might find at a, at a store? Or Typically, the compounded cream is cheaper than what you'd find at a higher end. Oh, that's spot, interesting. Yeah, because some of these creams now, you know, if you go into the dermatology office and you're looking at these creams, you, you know, you're looking at price points of like two to $300 for some of this stuff. Wow. Okay. Whereas if you get it compounded, you're looking more about 80 or 90. They're still not cheap, but it's less. When you, say, when you say 80 or 90, how long would that last somebody? Uh, month to six weeks. It depends how often you're using it. You know, so, so like vitamin C, the vitamin B3, the vitamin E, that would be something you use in the morning. The retinol, the vitamin A, you'd be wanting to use that at night. You wouldn't want to use that in the morning because using vitamin A in the morning can actually increase sun damage. Ah. And vitamin A also, that's something you can't use when you're pregnant. It's a caution around lactation. So that's something that's, you know, you have to be a little more cautious. It's the same with estrogen. Not everyone should be using estrogen topically on their skin. That, you know, maybe more through after your postmenopause, and also you want to make sure you know there could be risks with breast cancer there too hmm. so it is really good to be working with someone that's well versed in this arena to make sure you're using the best you know skin cream for you we don't think you know using something topically would be absorbed so much in the body but it absolutely is it's actually a very fast way to get hormones into the body is using it through the skin interesting okay so in addition to topical creams or ointments you could also go for a massage, right? And, and that might help your face? Face massage, actually. Again, Chinese medicine and in some of these ancient forms of medicine, you, doing a face massage, uh, you can do it yourself, actually. A nightly face massage can help because it can stimulate that collagen. You're actually putting some pressure onto your face. And if you simply just Google, you know, face massage for anti-aging, face massage for wrinkles, there's tons of different, you know, find something that's, you know, reputable. There's certain 
skin cream companies that do have an expert on there showing you how to do a face massage for anti-aging. And how long a massage is this going to be? Because I know I know certain people who will remain nameless whose nighttime regimen is already like into 30 minutes. So how long is a massage? <laughs> One to two minutes. One to two minutes. I think that's manageable. And okay. it actually feels really nice. Okay. So you can use your hands or you can use something called, you know, there's become very popular jade rollers or rose quartz rollers. Again, something that's been used in China for years and years and years that have kind of come onto the scene in North America, they are jade or a rose quartz is a stone right. that's been made into kind of a roller. It's nice and cold. So right. that's also, you know, we've spoken about cold before on the program and how that actually can help anti-aging. So it's exposing your face to cold, but then it also adds that massage. And if you put on a cream or a serum, it helps the cream or serum get into the skin a little bit better as well. Is there anything that we can do for our skin when we're sleeping? It's almost like multitasking. Yeah, so using, again, one of these creams before bed, making sure that your face is hydrated because, you know, when looking at anti-aging, we want to look at, you know, the antioxidants, the cell regulators, the skin damage, but we also want to make sure our skin's hydrated, like we said with the food, making sure that you're putting on a good hydrating cream at night. So it doesn't necessarily have to be some of these things we talked about before. It can be simply olive oil or coconut oil, something that's hydrating on your skin. Using a humidifier, especially in the winter months, can help your skin stay hydrated. And then interestingly enough, the pillowcase that you use. So silk has a wonderful way of not stripping your skin of oils. Cotton or polyester actually can take oils out of your skin, but a silk pillowcase can really actually help your skin retain moisture. And for those that suffer from acne, it's actually a great way to reduce acne as well. Okay. Well, that's good. It also sounds very hoity-toity, but I'll have to look into the silk pillowcase. What are <laughs> it's some... a nice touch. It's it is. Nice touch. You know, it makes things, yeah. you know, it adds to the bedroom. You could and... use it in the guest bedroom. Your guests would like It's that. true. Yeah. Yes, we never have guests, but yes, you're right. A lot of people take Botox out there. We only have time for one more question, but yes. are there alternatives to Botox for those who are you know, terrified of the thought of using it? There are. So getting regular facials, there's a lot of different things like peels, light therapy that can have some really good effects. There's also something called microneedling or acupuncture needling that mm -hmm. can be really effective to reduce wrinkles. Those are things, you know, Botox, it's kind of like a one-shot injection. Then you need to go, you know, depending on how bad the wrinkles is, every month or every three months. Whereas with microneedling or, or acupuncture needle, that's something to actually get the effect you, you need to go very often right. for a certain period of time. If you're okay with injections, but you're not okay with the botulism toxin being injected into the cells, then there's new um, different therapies like using stem cells that can be injected into the area. That's also very, very effective. And probably a bit pricey though, right? It is. It is a bit pricey. And, you know, it's also a question some people don't ask where the stem cells come from. A lot of the stem cells that are using for anti-aging on the skin, they actually come from the foreskin of circumcised penises from babies. And you don't think about that, but some people aren't comfortable with that either. I can assure you I am not comfortable with it. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But you'll come again next month, right? I will, yes. Excellent. And thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on Facebook at The Tonic Talk Show 
or at Jamie Busson on Instagram. For great articles written by Megan Horsley and Dr. Emily Lipinski, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss how to create your own workout mix, why your joints are your healing centres, and yoga for your mojo. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.